One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Beginners to stage, beginners to stage. How many times have I said not to touch the cross? 
Hello everyone and welcome to this week's Backstage at Cry Havoc. I am your host, Laurie Ann Davis, she, her, and today we're talking about theatre through the ages. Roman theatre, historical theatre, old theatre in general. And I am joined once again by Rafaela Marcus, David K. Barnes, and also Dr. Emma Southern has joined us again. Would you all introduce yourselves, please, with pronouns and tell us what you did on the show and a little about yourselves. Let's go reverse alphabetically. Raf, I'm throwing you in the deep end. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm Raf. My pronouns are she, her and they, them. And I wrote this episode about theatre. Uh, oh my gosh, my brain's frantically trying to go backwards. Emma, Emma, you're next. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dr. Emma Southern. I'm a historian. I use she, her pronouns. And I was a historical consultant for Cry Havoc. And David. Hello, I'm David. He, him. And I was the creator of this series and writer and sadly not a doctor. Oh. One day. <laughs> One day. I was going to offer to call you doctor, but I was like, that feels weird. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Let us start this episode. We're going to cover a little bit about the Cry Havoc episode, Deus Ex Machina. And then we'll go on to talk a bit more about theatre and history a bit more generally. So you should have just listened to the episode, everyone. But for our sake and for Emma's sake as well... What happens in this episode? Raph, would you like to go or has it been too long since you wrote it? I mean, it has been a, a long time. I, I was rereading the script earlier because I was like, what, what happens in this episode? This is the episode in which the play that Octavia has written and Charmian is starring in is finally performed with hilarious results. Hilarity ensues. Um, yeah, I pitched to write this episode to David and Armani because I said, can I do Noises Off? but for the Roman theatre and in 20 minutes and and on audio, because why do you do something simple? (laughs) So, yes, that's what happens in this episode. It's almost entirely set in the theatre, both in the audience and backstage, and things go wrong and then they resolve, much in the tradition of Roman comedy. Fantastic. Am I right to call this a farce? I hope so. (laughs) Yeah, Okay. No, that's me checking the definition of farce, not being like... Did you write a fast though? <laughs> I, I'd say it is. I mean, we have a, a later episode set in the theatre by Sarah Shackett is uh, uh, loosely based on Mel Brooks as the producers, which is more of a versatile comedy. But this one's definitely Michael Frayn farce. Character needs to be in two places at the same time, running back and forth. It's one where Shamia needs to be in a play whilst also attending to Cleopatra who's in the audience and Cleopatra doesn't know that Charmian's in the play and the other actors don't know that Charmian's Cleopatra's servant and she has to run back and forth without anybody else noticing that's what's going on. Yeah. As I say, trying to do an entire farce like that on audio. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So one of my questions was going to be were you given the episode you must make this a farce but it sounds like Raph you were like I want to write a farce. (laughs) No I knew that there was going to be you know there's a whole strand of the story of the overarching series is set in the theatre and my background is in the theatre as a director and as a writer and theatre people love writing about theatre and it's very annoying for everyone else but I asked if I could do this episode with my pitch sort of being you know I know a little bit about Roman comedy a lot of which is where we get our fast conventions kind of come from this Ah. this era of of comedy which then has there's a very straight line through it into Goldoni and Shakespeare 
year and then kind of the restoration and sort of you know this we haven't changed how we do comedy pretty much in the last 2000 years <laughs> my sort of pitch was i wonder if i could do the conventions of a roman comedy in this episode that's also sort of about a roman comedy yeah i love that it's almost like roman comedy inception <laughs> yes in <my> <laughs> so you have a history in theatre. Did you have specifically Roman knowledge? Did you have to do much research into Roman theatre itself? I probably didn't do as much research as I should have. I, I, I did the writerly thing of going, well, I've got a, a basic amount of knowledge and I'm going to extrapolate out from there in case any actual history or facts interfere with what I want to do <laughs> with the episode. But I, like I said, I'm sort of familiar with the big sort of Roman comic writers like Terence and Plautus and a lot of Shakespeare plots are based on those. So like the, the comedy of errors, the Shakespeare play is, is based on a Roman comedy. And all of the conventions are very recognisable, right? It's twins, it's mistaken identities, um, yeah. it's being in two places at once or needing to be in two places at once. And then that kind of comes through into Commedia dell'arte. So like the, I mentioned Goldoni, the Goldoni play is Servant of Two Masters, which you might have seen in its incarnation ah. as One Man, Two Governors. Um, yeah, yeah. All of it, it's all from the same sort of lineage of again yeah things we find funny what we find funny is someone opening a door and going you're not supposed to be there and then slamming the door again and I I read a basic amount of Latin so I have read a little bit of sort of Terence with a lot of help from dictionaries and things um but I think originally I think the original title of this episode was Noises Off in Latin. My translation of no, the phrase oh, Noises Off brilliant. into Latin and then David wouldn't let me do that. No. Which is fair enough. <laughs> oh, I'm really sad that that didn't happen. No, it's for the best. <laughs> it is very convenient as well that they were wearing masks. Is that accurate? Is that they would have been doing that, right, Emma? It is, yeah. So you have the, you know, the classic image of the comedy tragedy mask that yeah. you have that it comes directly from Greek and then Roman theatre. So the tragic mask is a big sad face and the comic mask is a big happy-ish grotesque face. But yeah, so and then all the acting has to be done effectively with your arms and legs and voice <laughs> almost well, I don't know there are similarities to audio acting there but also very different I guess it's very <laughs> physical isn't it I just realized as well so Raf and Emma you never actually interacted no and just to put you at ease Raf Emma is this kind of a story I think I'm right in saying this that's like that's nah, cool if that sounds good change it it's yeah. fine <laughs> you. So you don't need to worry about like being like oh I took some artistic liberties <laughs> Yeah, my feeling always with this kind of thing is that, that your job as artists is not to be doing history. It's to be using history to tell stories and to make people laugh and to make the art you want to make. And my job is to write history and not try to, you know, step on anybody else's toes and think that I'm overly funny or anything. And so, you know, any history that gets in there is brilliant because most people experience history through art and through things like historical drama and historical comedy and historical fiction but that's not really your job your job is to tell the story in the way that fits the story and fits your kind of aims as writers rather than anything else and when people get really up in arms about historical accuracy I'm a bit like that's not the purpose of art the purpose of art is to <laughs> speak to the culture in which it's in 
It's the job of historians to do history. You say it's, it wasn't your job to be funny. I'm quoting you in uh, the notes that you gave me, which are some of the funniest notes I've received from anyone. <laughs> uh, one quote in particular, most of Octavian's association of Apollo is subtle because he is subtle and careful and smart as f***. <laughs> that will get bleeped. Um, but... I asked for no swears, but fine. <laughs> you need to get a PhD to be able to swear like that, and yeah. I am delighted. Uh, I yeah. I've got to say, these notes uh, consistently all the way through were like so entertaining to read. Like to be honest, Emma's notes brought a lot of the subject to life for me before I'd even started to write dialogue. And yeah, I, I, like Raph, also creating ideas and going right. I, w- I hope that's historically accurate because that's what I want to go with. And then realizing <laughs> actually much of what we're just making up turns out was actually accurate somehow, which is useful. Ah, or extrapolated. Yes. I think we established and yeah. educated. I don't want to say guess because I feel like that minimizes it. No, I think Raph <laughs> extrapolated. I guess. <laughs> I guess yeah. So, can we dive into what was Roman theatre like? What would the experience of going to the theatre have been? So, everybody goes to the theatre, much like everybody goes to the games, and they are held usually in conjunction with the games. So, they're held at religious festivals throughout the year. So, you have the Ludi, and then theatre is part of those games. So, they're held in a way, it's technically a religious context, but in a kind of very raucous religious context. It's kind of like... Christmas is technically a religious context, but when you're out on drinks on Christmas Eve, then you're not thinking about like the birth of Jesus. You're just thinking about a festival atmosphere. It's kind of like going to the pantomime. Exactly. And so so they have various different types of theatre. Comedy seems to have been the most popular because that's the one that whereby we have the most that survive. When people are copying them out and preserving them, comedy survives a lot more than tragedy does. Mostly, I suspect, because comedy, they adapt it to Roman contexts, whereas tragedy, they almost never do. Romans don't really write their own stuff for the theatre. And when they do, they're just writing their own versions of Greek things. So almost all of Roman tragedy, I say almost all, 100% of Roman tragedy is Greek. It's about Troy. It's about Greek myth. It's about the Persian Wars. It's entirely about Greek myth and history. And they do nothing about their own for entirely obscure reasons. With comedy, a bit, they will put their own little jokes in or they will translate Greek comedy into Roman jokes. And they will occasionally put their own little thing. And Terence, in particular, is like the main innovator. And he is still doing translations, but he does put his own Roman spin on things. So it's possible that that's why it's more popular. Also, everybody enjoys comedy more than they enjoy a big tragedy a bit more escapist yeah and it's definitely the more like popular in terms of that's the one if you're gonna have a theater with you know two thousand people in it then you're gonna pack out a comedy you might not pack out a tragedy (laughs) but everybody will go to see it there will be special seats for senators so that they definitely get a seat and women are there children are there enslaved people are there everyone who can get in will get in and have a great time and it's often very well it's much like a pantomime again like people are shouting out the lines there's kind of back and forth there's this great story about an actor who actually fell asleep during a scene where she was supposed to be asleep amazing and it's a he obviously with the character she and didn't wake up until the entire audience shouted their cue line so the cue line is like wake up i'm calling you and so the entire theatre joins in to wake her up and it can be a very kind of 
interactive experience. Mm. That it's all stock characters, stock situations. Everything is quite familiar and it's a lot of joining in and having a good time rather than kind of stayed sitting. Yeah, what we would might think of now. Yeah. Do we know when theatre kind of got to the point where people would very quietly sit there? <laughs> I'm going to guess the Victorians. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> it's always the bloody Victorians. Sucking the fun out of everything. <laughs> there is actually a very good academic called Kirsty Housley who writes about audience studies. And yes, it's basically, it's it was the Victorians because yeah. then theatre becomes a way of enforcing sort of social structures and social kind of hegemony rather than being something in which everyone joins in as an equal i mean never quite been an equal because exactly as you, you said emma there's you know the best seats are obviously for the people who can pay the most but yes it theater becomes another way of enforcing a code of conduct that is very much created by white middle class people mm. what would have been considered the best seats you know like there's this weird thing where boxes are considered so like the elite but you get them because you want to be seen or would they have been having the best seats to watch the play, do you think? It would be a combination of the two. The main thing is making sure that they have seats. <laughs> <laughs> that there are seats that are reserved for all of the senators and that they're all together. Yeah, they're going to be like Roman dress means that you're very visible. Like your status is extremely visible regardless of what you're doing because it is very literally on your sleeve, whether you are a senator or not, or an equestrian or an enslaved person. So being seen is very, very important but also being able to see the stage without having hordes in your eyeline is, is important as well. I don't think I completely translated my whole thought there because boxes are often, I wonder if that is a Victorian thing, like right at the front on the right so you can be seen or right or left of the stage, but then you can't see half the stage. <laughs> well, I do know a little bit about this. Oh, tell me. Well, boxes are pre-Victorian because you have to think about it's the, the transition from outdoor to indoor playhouses that happens mm. during, can you, you know, think about the globe is obviously open to the elements. And then within Shakespeare's lifetime, they start building kind of purposefully indoor theatres and that then becomes the norm that becomes the default so before you even get to the Victorians you've got sort of the birth of the West End so you've got like Drury Lane where Byron the poet was on the board of, of Drury Lane and um, you get these advances in theatrical technology because obviously you're indoors you're having to light it yourself they're moving on from lighting everything with candles to experimenting with different types of lighting and then also special effects technology kind of becomes something as well because you're kind of limited with what you could do in the outdoor spaces and yeah I think the boxes are a result of of like what you would recognize as a West End theatre today, kind of proscenium march, all of that. But they're um, a descendant of the sort of Elizabethan thing of the very richest people sitting on the stage to watch it, kind of at the sides of the stage. So it's, it's yeah, it's we've moved them off the stage, but they can still, yeah, be seen. And yeah, the views from boxes are crap. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Really bad. laughs> That's actually a wonderful segue. Something else I wanted to talk about was the stagecraft. Like, what kind of stagecraft they had in Roman times? Because in our episode, Charmian is, well, raised or lowered, I can't remember, onto stage on some kind of crane? Lowered. Yes, a bit which is to come in as the god. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I was like, wow, that feels really, like, advanced. 
Would they have had that kind of thing? They did have that kind of thing. They had various oh. types of cranes. I guess it's a pulley. <laughs> yeah, basically they have pulleys. They have things that go up and down and things you can climb on sometimes. But yeah, there are occasional terrible accidents where people were swung too heavily across the stage or dropped. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, which would liven up a play you'd seen before. But <laughs> so when you get to the late Republic, you've got the first permanent theatre that has been built. So everything before... Pompey in like the 60s BCE is in temporary theatres wooden structures that are built for the festival and then dismantled afterwards but Pompey massively went against tradition and caused a minor scandal when he built a huge permanent theatre with his name on it in the centre of the Circus Maximus which is where Julius Caesar was assassinated (laughs) but it is the first time they have a permanent theatre and so they are able to start bringing in more complex stagecraft than they would have been able to and you start to get after the late republic you start to get people talking about things like moving scenery so scenery that turns around and then there's somebody on the other side or the scenery suddenly changes or things that go up and down that are to reveal parts of the stage that you couldn't see whereas previously it's basically all they've got is doors and occasionally a bit of fabric so loads of roman and greek comedy is just people going in and out of doors popping out windows (laughs) and popping out again so now they can start to bring in much more complicated things partly because they need to make the permanent structure jazzy you can't just build a whole new thing every time Mm. and you need to adapt it for different plays whereas previously they would build a specific theatre for the play that was going to be put on now they have to adapt the scenery a bit but they can get more innovative and there's nothing that Romans like more than a bit of technology of things that swing around and move up and for all of their total lack of innovation in the area of like plays they are very very innovative when it comes to technologies of buildings they were engineers not artists they love a good bit of engineering yes (laughs) in my head the episode takes place in the theater of pompey and that is something where that is a a stretch because (laughs) (laughs) well because because exactly as you you said emma it kind of it's where caesar was assassinated and octavia has written a play that takes place on the day caesar was assassinated and and that's also a stretch they wouldn't have done that like that that is they didn't really have a new writing culture uh, in ancient rome in the way you recognize it but i thought that writing that play for it to be performed kind of where Caesar was assassinated was exactly the kind of sort of edgelord thing that Octavia would, <laughs> yeah. would do to be like, oh, I'm going to really make them think. Because Gaius does boast to Cleopatra that this is their permanent theatre, right? In the script. Yeah. Yeah. Because as you were talking, Emma, I was like having my mind blown, like, oh, this is where he was murdered. <laughs> That's really bold of Octavia. I just think when, when Raph has the subject, I thought, oh, no, should we do that? And thought, well, actually, no, it's... In this fictional timeline where Octavia is a master satirist of writing up-to-date <laughs> political comedy plays for the Roman masses. Yeah, all right, you would. And actually, in the scenes, certainly in the scenes that we see depicted, it's more making fun of Cassius and Brutus, which actually kind of makes, that makes sense. It's sort of, here's the assassination of someone we like, 
but we kind of boo hister villains and then laugh when they're incompetent and fall over and that kind of thing. And I thought, <laughs> no, you know, it's a stretch, but I don't think it's impossible. You know, this this sounds it seems likely in in the world we've created. It felt very yeah, very right, very likely. Well, yeah, I was thinking again about you know, not so much in theatre, but other kind of Roman writers, and there's you know a huge huge tradition of satire in Roman literature, kind of across a bunch of different genres and and forms, but also the most successful poets were the ones that knew which side their bread was buttered on. So I don't know. Well, Octave is probably in that tradition of I can write yeah. a satire about these recent events so long as Brutus and Cassius are the butt of every joke. Yeah. yeah. When it comes to the playwrights we still have, I know we, we have Terence and Plautus from comedy. We have Seneca for tragedy. Do we have any other extant Roman playwrights? We do. So there's Aeneas, who we've got a couple of. Accius is the one that we have the most of. So we know 40 of his plays. I mean, when I say the most, it is extremely relative in that the most that we have outside of Seneca, where we've got one possible extant play and a couple, um, is... Um, 700 lines across various plays so it's not like (laughs) massive swear you couldn't put one on but we know that he wrote a lot but they're all mid-republic so by the time you get to like 150-ish BCE there is a real petering out of writing original plays and certainly performing original plays we know that some senators wrote them we know Octavian wrote a play and then got really embarrassed about it called Ajax and then got so embarrassed about it that he burnt it well I wish I'd known that absolutely would have gone into the episode (laughs) if I had known that we can still do a pickup if you want to like these are senators writing plays it's like the Roman equivalent Julian Fellows suddenly like knocking out Gosford Park yeah and then like Cicero says that Julius Caesar's uncle wrote a play and got accepted into the collegia of actors and playwrights and everybody relentlessly made fun of him for it. So <laughs> it had become kind of quite embarrassing almost as a hobby. <laughs> like the, like writing teenage poetry or something, like people would write it and then everyone would be like, oh my God, you're such a loser. <laughs> but it does seem to have massively petered out. But where there's loads of satire is poetry like poetry is where romans put everything and then they'll perform it to each other after dinner in what sounds like a genuine nightmare but that's (laughs) where like all of those like juvenile satires and all of the big things and ovid writing his poems and things like when you're writing satires about and nasty poems about people and then you perform it after dinner and then you send copies to all your friends and everybody goes (laughs) there's a great by coincidence, I came back across this the other day. There's a Marshall epigram, which is like, I can't remember the name of the guy that he's talking to, but he's like, oh, you're always asking me why I never send you my work. It's in case you send me yours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Burn. They're so rude. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I'm really getting that impression, but I don't know if it's just because Cicero keeps coming up and everyone thinks that he's a horrible Yeah. <laughs> I'm learning a lot. Yeah, Larry, you were talking about the crane earlier. That is where the title of the episode comes from. (laughs) Yeah, where the god comes in at the end and solves everything. (laughs) Do you know what? I nearly googled where does that come from the other day. So, like specifically, how? Literally, so Deus Ex Machina translates as God from the machine, or God out of the machine, and because it's this trope at the end of plays that you know everything gets in such a a hopeless tangle of confusion (laughs) that a god has to come down from the heavens and sort it all out 
and this is again getting into the overlap between theatre and, and religion but again it's in Shakespeare as well it's at the end of As You Like It the marriage god comes goes, and, goes <laughs> and literally says right I'm going to sort this all out so the and the machine the ex, the machina the crane is the physical mechanism by which the god is you know descending or the actor playing oh. the god is descending to the stage but we also use it now deus ex machina to mean you know a plot convenience because i'm coming in out of the blue and going oh everything's solved now so that's um <laughs> even if i couldn't title the episode noises off in latin which i think was like <laughs> strepitus post skynam or something i was delighted to then go oh deus ex machina that's it's literally yeah. deus ex machina Brilliant. i think it's the one bit of latin that i've allowed into the series <laughs> <laughs> so I thought enough people would know about it might as well Populist romance series. <laughs> Actually, you let Tabula Rossa through as well, I think. No, yes, you're right. I just edited it quite recently, which is why it's fresh in my mind. Uh, I was asleep on the job on that day. <laughs> oh, well, that's the title of a Buffy episode as well, so I think you're all right with that. Oh, one. Which, which Buffy episode? So um, it's like season. I, I, I'm rewatching it at the moment. This will get. Now cut. we're getting yeah. to the point. Here we go. I'm sorry. We have jumped the track, and it is my fault. Larry, I've recorded eight of these episodes all about Rome. This is the most animated you've been so far. Look, Rome Outrageous. isn't my speciality, and I'm learning, and I'm really enjoying it. But Buffy, like I could talk nodding about nodding along. Oh yeah, Terence. Yes, yeah, Seneca. Yeah, okay. I'll just sit back. Actually, Buffy, back. this will get us back. Uh, this is very to the point. Who is Terence? I haven't heard of Terence. You keep saying it, and I'm thinking Rattigan, and it's obviously not Rattigan because that's like a little very, late. very long lived man. But also a playwright. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He's a Roman playwright. He wrote comedies. Ah. Was, was he born in? Did he come from Carthage? He uh, comes to Rome as a slave. He's enslaved, uh, and then he is uh, freed and kind of gets in with a load of aristocrats around the guy who bought him, who uh, get him into writing plays basically, oh. and then he becomes. One of the two big, there's two big Roman comedy writers. So we have six of his plays, which are from about 160-ish BC. The one before him is Plautus, who is the really famous one. Here's the one that I did loads of translations of when I was doing Latin. But with all the rude bits taken out, which is disappointing. (laughs) Yeah, and they're kind of the two big comedy writers. What they do is take loads of plays by a Hellenistic guy called Menander, who is a kind of late Greek writer. He's called a new comedy, which is cleaner versions of ancient Greek comedy, which have fewer penis jokes in them. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) And then they take those and translate them and rewrite them into the Roman setting. I'm really sorry, but I'm going to take penis as a segue again. (laughs) It's the second time this has happened in this backstage series. Who would have been performing? It would have been men, right? Yes. It's all men, except in pantomimes. So another thing that Romans have that they really love is silent, semi-improvised pantomime, basically. Oh, I thought you were going to say silent women. I was like, oh, for God's sake. (laughs) Well, that is the only thing that women are allowed to perform in. So it is silent women. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And actually, one of the reasons that we know that women went to the theatre is that there is a bit of Terence, kind of ancient playwrights will put prologues on their thing where an actor is kind of in the voice of the playwright will come out and sort of berate the audience essentially <laughs> or complain about something and so there is a bit where in the beginning of one of Terence's plays where he's like telling them what to do is like don't come on the stage don't get up and leave and wander in and out don't go to sleep and snore really loudly don't eat if you brought a baby keep them quiet and then he says if you're a woman 
laugh silently and keep quiet because no one wants to hear your wittering. Okay. <laughs> See, I liked Terence and his arc, but now he has lost me. I'm right off him. The only thing going for him are those I, I read through in the Penguin Classic volume, and they've got this other prologues, and most of them are just him like slagging off his critics. Yeah. Which is something that I think amazing. Just before he said, "Here's an, here's a, uh, my new play," but before we get started in that, can I just <laughs> gun it? Can I can I the Daily Telegraph can sod off? What's all this? I think we should bring this back. This is yeah. definitely Isn't something that, that playwrights should be allowed to do for? now. Like, yeah. like that's well, no, there's this real like theatre kind of etiquette thing of like, oh, it's bad form to respond to a review, but no, I want to come out before every show and go. Can I yeah. just show of hands? Okay, I'm just going to read you. Yeah. I'm just going to read you this review, okay? Because I think this reads like a four, but they gave it three stars. So yeah. can you just let's have a vote. Yeah. <laughs> I have a fun fact for for you, for, for you specifically, Laurie, because is this correct that you are in this episode? Yes, I playing, am. Playing Basilla, mm-hmm. a name that of a of a real Roman, probably air quotes, actress. <gasps> uh, oh, that is a good fact. I like yeah. that. That's a good fact. There are two actors, other actors in the yes. episode, Mascus and Basilla, and Mascus is me being very, very clever and because it sounds like mask. And but <laughs> Basilla, I was like, oh, well, you know, well, we're going to have a, a female actor in this, which again, it's not yeah. really accurate, but, but who cares? And I was like, oh, I wonder if I can just get a name from history so I did a little google and yeah she see, appears to have been like I said sort of actress in kind of air quotes in the sense of probably a courtesan but also a a performer oh that's cool uh, Mascus and Basilla recur throughout the series because you created them oh, and great, great I'll keep using them so they keep turning up <laughs> I will expect my residuals in the post yeah thanks Ra <laughs> oh that feels like a really good place to wrap up but we do need to wrap up but uh, I'm going to ask one more question. The, it's actually a continuation of the who would have been performing. And so we've established as men, but also who would they have been like in the standing of society? Well, see, this actually a perfect segue from Raf, which is that they were basically in the same line as sex workers ah, okay, for the most yeah. part. Legally, actors are considered to be sort of what's called infamies, which is means sort of outside of the law, like with sex workers and people who work in bars and because they were seen to be basically selling their bodies mm. because so much of acting is very, very physical. So like through the legal kind of cultural perspective, they were seen to be selling their bodies and therefore debasing themselves to a certain extent but at the same time individual actors were often massively highly lauded for their abilities and you could have actors they come from all kinds of backgrounds some of them are enslaved some of them are free some of them are freedmen some of the you know they come from you know family dynasties and things like that but some of them could be paid huge amounts of money to be in people's plays they could be massive draws they get reputations for playing certain stock characters so you get guys who are very very famous for playing parasites or people who are very very famous for playing clever slaves and if you knew that they were going to be in that play then everyone would go and see it and then you want them to make your dinner party because you know then they become kind of they become celebrities basically you know you want to hang out with them you get a bit of glamour from them so on an individual level they could become really respected but if you murdered them no one could ever prosecute you for it because you could legally murder them oh wow (laughs) 
And also they and their children were not allowed to marry senators after Augustus. So Augustus made it the law that actors and actors' children could never marry senators unless a senator gave up their status, making acting a basically a stain on the soul that goes through the generations. <laughs> wow. I wrote some of the earlier questions I, I asked you were were there anything analogous to a modern day theatre company? And you said yes. <laughs> they were like theatre companies and even like actors had agents yeah. back then. They don't do their own negotiating. They say theatre company will have an agent and then there'll be an agent that's working for whoever's putting the play on and then if somebody's written a play then they'll have then everybody so they do have these theatre companies and they could be quite famous and in demand and so they would need somebody looking out for their interests yeah i think i put a joke about agents i don't know if it's made it in in the end but oh i think because <laughs> um even though uh, you and i hadn't met before today emma i sort of devoured the notes that you know you sent over <laughs> and i was so because i think you sent it out and they had agents i was like yes right well yes. well that's a joke that writes itself isn't it um, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> it's the sort of thing that people will assume that's one of the sort of like you know a blackadder style gag of like a modern thing stuck in old no, that's the that's the one I was taking from the research. <laughs> and on that note, I'm going to wrap us up because we are running long. And this was absolutely delightful. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Is there anything anyone would like to plug? Raf, would you like to go first if there's anything? Uh, yes, if you've been going, who, who is this person? They're, they're vaguely familiar to me. Um, it's because my, my other life is... Raf, the director and one of the writers of Trice Forgotten, so I would ve- yes. also a Rusty Quill original. So if you like history and you like silly jokes and probably some slightly more serious stuff about um, imperialism, because yeah. imperialism it just it ruins everything, you can have a listen to Trice Forgotten as well. Yeah, and we also had a companion show with that as well called Below Decks, where we talked to consultants and historians, which were really interesting. Yes, um, which were variously hosted by Nemo, the show creator, or me. So yeah. um, it's, it's not my first uh, context episode rodeo. <laughs> no. That's why I'm so professional. <laughs> And Emma, did you want to? Yeah, well, if you like listening to how imperialism is bad, then that seems to be the final kind of lesson of virtually every episode of my podcast I've ever done, which is history is sexy. Um, So if you want just me talking about various types of history of questions uh, about history that people can't be bothered to Google themselves, then (laughs) historyissexy.com. Lovely. David, you're on a lot of these, but if there's anything you want to... I I just like people to... Keep listening to Cry Havoc. Yeah. Please listen to the next yeah. one. Give it a go. Come it's on. a good one. Keep going. I know there's 20 of the damn things, but keep going. Keep going. <laughs> they are. You're, you're nearly at the halfway point. Go on. <laughs> right. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining me, listeners. Thank you for joining us. I will see you on the next episode. And it's goodbye from everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye. Backstage at Cry Havoc is a podcast distributed by Rusty Quill and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. It is directed by Armani Zardo, produced by Laurie Ann Davis, with executive producers Alexander J. Newell and April Sumner. This episode was edited by Laurie Ann Davis and Meg McCalla. Thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.